Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and I've got a treat for you guys today. My guest is the most prominent writer in the history of professional basketball. His column that he wrote for 30-plus years at the New York Post was considered a must-read by serious basketball fans, and he was recognized in 2009 by the Basketball Hall of Fame as a recipient of the Kurt Gowdy Media Award. The stories that he's broken throughout his career are legendary. Everything from Julius Irving being sold by the New York Nets to the Philadelphia 76ers to Latrell Sprewell choking P.J. Carlissimo at a Golden State Warriors practice in the 1990s. He's made friends, many of them. He's made enemies, many more. And you can call him a lot of things, but you'll never say he's boring. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, one of the most influential journalists in sports history and certainly one of the most controversial, the great Peter Vesey. Peter, how are you? I'm good. You could have gotten me without the great. I would have done the show anyway. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I, I, it, your career, to me, is fascinating. Uh, and I, I, I want to go back to kind of the, the, the beginning of the portion of your career where you started covering the NBA. I, I know growing up you, you've said that you were more of a baseball guy. H- how did right. basketball become the beat and become your, your passion and, and your life's work? Well, uh, basically, uh, you know, you want to start with the NBA, but I have to start with the ABA. Um, when I was a statistician for the New York Daily News, um, I got the chance to, to cover the ABA, cover the net, because nobody else wanted any part of them. You know, New York, New York was a, uh, a Nick town, obviously. Um, I, I started I started uh, writing uh, when I came out of the army in '67, and um, and so by '69 or so, I, I was given the chance to to start covering the Nets who were out in Long Island, and um, and and that's how it happened. I, I really never planned to be a writer. I never planned to be anything. Actually, um, it just happened, and and I was really fortunate because. I uh, had the chance to to learn about writing and reporting without uh, without worrying about making too many mistakes because nobody was noticing what, what I was writing or or cared, and um, so that that's how it happened. And it's it wasn't easy, believe me, because I, I really had no had no education for it. I, I went to high school, barely got out of that. And uh, did six months in, in, in college, and then quit that to be to join the Daily News full time. Uh, but I, the truth of the matter is, I'll, I'll divulge it to you. Um, I, I left before I got kicked out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was that was going to happen. And uh, you know, I was playing ball. I went to Hofstra. I played ball and I made the freshman team, and uh, I was doing pretty well with that. But I just wasn't wasn't made for the classroom. 
I've read where you've said before that the the, the ABA uh, is sort of an integral part of who you are, you know, that it's a part of the foundation that you had as a, as a writer and, and covering uh, professional basketball. What was it like um, in those early days? Because you're talking about covering the, covering the Nets. This is pre-Dr. Uh, pre J era Nets in those, uh, yeah. you know, sec, I think 69 was maybe the, uh, the, the third year of the ABA. So you've got this fledgling yeah. uh, league. And as you say, at New York, uh, you know, most definitely a Knicks town and, and the, the great uh, players that they had in that era. Um, what, what was it like covering the Nets? And, and what was your impression initially of, of the ABA? Well, uh, I'm going to steal somebody else's line, but I'm not going to give them credit. Um, <laughs> if that's how that's how we do it in journalism. Um, I learned. Uh, it was like covering a war zone. You, you know, you just never knew what was going to happen day to day. And um, I, I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. I, I enjoyed the fact that we uh, all, every one of us, were, were considered underdogs, even though there were players and referees and management that had been in the NBA and were jumping, you know, like like Rick Barry as a player, uh, referees, you know, like Earl Strom. Mm-hmm. They, you know, there was a lot of jumping back and forth, but um, for the most part, everyone, once they got there, we we were frowned upon and looked down upon, and the writers, the trainers, um, everybody. And so we bonded, and so I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. It was... You know, it was, I remember, you know, giving an interview way back when, and it was like, party hardy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, were, we were out there having fun, you know, in, in, the, warm, in the warm Miami sun and, and other places. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was hard, too, because the travel was rough. I, I just, I really laugh, uh, but not really, I would laugh sarcastically. At, at these players today, and, and then the writers and the, and the telecasters and the broadcasters, and they're all saying, you know, these back to backs, we gotta get rid of these back to backs, killing everybody. You know, Van Gundy the other day on the air saying, if I were, you know, running the union, I would make sure that we had no back to backs ever. Oh my God. I mean, these guys are traveling by charter. <laughs> you know, you know, they're five five star hotels. They're traveling with masseuses. It's a joke. And and in those days, you know, we had to catch. I say we because I really feel I was part of it because I had to go through all the drudgery too. And I and I always said to the players, you know, I I actually think you have it easier than I do because at least at least when we have to get up and catch the first plane out of uh, say, you know. Uh, Boy, and some small town in in Carolina or Virginia, because they were they were regional teams back then, or leaving Salt Lake City back then, or Indianapolis. Any of the small, you had to catch the first plane out to make sure that you you were there on time for the uh, the game that night, and uh, you were fine if if you didn't get the first plane out. But I told them, I said, at least you guys get to go play and work work it off. You know, I, I got to go and, you know, I, I'm like, I'm in a daze here. You know, it's like, you know, it was, it was tough. And, and you know, very little first class travel. You're taking small airlines. I mean, I could go through the whole thing. It was it was crazy, but it was, you know, looking back, there was some, you know, really great parts of it. And I still, 
to this day stay in touch with many, many of the guys that I covered. So I, you know, I just love that part of it. That's tremendous. I, I you know, I, I think uh, it was the merger year that uh, that you wound up. Oh, don't say merger. Don't say merger. <laughs> Yeah, NBA will find you. It was a consolidation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if the NBA yeah. powers that be are listening, they took four ABA teams. Yeah, yeah, you and don't want, you don't want to, you don't want to get Stern angry at you in retirement. <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's got connections. I'm I'm not going to mess with uh, uh, David Stern. Yeah. Uh, well, you know that year, I believe, was uh, when you began your, uh, you know, what ultimately was a thirty-plus year running national column. Uh, covering the the NBA, I think you were really the first national specialist sports writer in that regard. Uh, what was it like getting that platform? Because I think that uh, you know, for those of us who know you today and know the journey that that uh, you've been on, both uh, with the written word and 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 also covering uh, on television, that was sort of the beginning of your journey as a national presence, at least for many of us. What was it like having that platform? First, first of all, I, I started that column, uh, I was given that column uh, when the New York Post hired me from the Daily News, saved my, saved my life, my career, basically, because it, was, it wasn't going well at that point. But, but uh, I, I was given the column, and you're right, I was the first national columnist uh, specialized, I'll say that way, um, in any sport. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was ni- that was 1976, and that was the year after the consolidation. You know, coming into that year, you know, Julius Irving had just forced a trade to Philadelphia, a story which I broke on the front page of the New York Daily News, I might add. Um, but but um, so, what was it like? It was uh, again. Uh, it was it was exhilarating, and uh, you know, there was a lot of total freedom I was given by my sports editor, a guy named Jerry Liska, who unfortunately died when he was in his 50s. Uh, He's the guy responsible for my career. We'd worked together at the Daily News, and when he got hired by Rupert Murdoch, when he bought the New York Post, I was his first hire, and I was given the column. So that was 1976, but he gave me total freedom. And, uh, you know, I just went into it thinking that... uh, um, I just wanted, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be entertaining. Uh, I, I wanted to be, uh, you know, a really good reporter. Uh, I wanted to break stories. I wanted to break balls. And um, <laughs> I accomplished all that. <laughs> you did both. But, uh, you know, it was 35 years. It was, it was 35 years I had to count, basically. And, and three years off at USA Today in the uh, 90s, early 90s because Rupert Murdoch was forced to sell the post thanks to Ted Kennedy's legislation. You were allowed to own a paper and a TV station in the same market. Mm-hmm. And so I left I left and went to USA Today. I was recruited by, by that and uh, by that paper. And then when he brought the paper back without getting into all the sort of details, um, I left I left USA Today with permission, and I and I re-signed with the Post, and then stayed there till 2011. The the thing that I think fascinates me the most about about you as a as a writer and as a as a journalist 
is the fact that and you ball buster. <laughs> and ball buster and ball professional ball buster. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> is that what is that what went on the tax return? Ball buster. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Occupation ball buster. Uh, you were red, white, and blue. <laughs> now you were fearless. Uh, people who uh, people who you had tweaked might you know come up with different words to describe it. But I mean, mm. you you were not a guy who anybody would ever accuse of kissing ass to maintain access, and that's what seems to be kind of common within the industry sometimes as guys get cozy and friendly and I, and I know you have your your friends but you you've made enemies you've made friends who were enemies who were friends again um Boy, you, that's, you you're absolutely right about that um but you always you always told it the the way that you saw it uh and not a lot of guys necessarily have the courage to to be that way in print um, and it's one of those things that got you a lot of acclaim, but it also uh, caused you a lot of problems through the years. I mean, what kind of uh, experience uh, have you had through the years? Because I know Pat Riley, for instance, is a guy who, uh, as I was prepping for this interview, was <laughs> I was reading something from 15 or 20 years ago, and he was talking like you were uh, uh, the devil incarnate. And uh, I, you know, more recently, I, I've seen him speaking rather well of you uh, and of his respect. Yeah. Um, right, right. What's it like? I mean, it seems like a roller coaster ride of relationships that were yeah. good and rocky and back and forth. Because as you, yeah. I don't have to tell you, people are quite sensitive about what goes out there about them in print, and you know that better than anyone. You know, in the beginning, in the beginning, it was probably more difficult because I was uh, just, just, uh, they didn't know what to make of me. And um, again, you know, you said it. I would take on my friends if I thought if I thought they needed to be uh, slapped around, and um, and so that was that was a real problem. Uh, that that became a real problem almost immediately. One of my first columns at the uh, at the Post was uh, a Larry Brown expose, so to speak. Uh, went out to Denver and uh, spent a couple days out there and and wrote a column about how the team hated him. And they were in first place. And so I've known Larry. Um, I saw Larry play in high school, actually. Um, and um, so I've known him as a player. And now he was the coach of the, of the Nuggets. And um, so he, you know, obviously took great exception with what I wrote and called me the next day and just went off and uh, gave me a second column. <laughs> <laughs> That's how that works. <laughs> And then, and then Carl Shear was the GM at the time, went off and gave me a third column. And, and so at, at the end of the year, you know, he, he had told me, I know who your sources are, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the sources, the sources turned out to be exactly true as far as what would happen in the playoffs. You know, Larry would change everything after they, they you know, they won the division. He might have been one of the best teams in the league. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can't. I don't remember exact specifics, but you know, it turned out to be exactly right what the players said. And then at the end of the year, uh, he traded. He and Carl Shear traded. I'd say four or five of those guys, uh, including uh, Marvin Webster, Paul Silas, uh, Matt Calvin, Willie Wise, and uh, I, I'm not sure about Fatty Taylor, but you know, maybe five guys. And he was right. They were my sources. <laughs> 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 and, 
and he nailed them all, you know, and he really <laughs> fixed them. He sent he sent uh, Webster and Silas to Seattle with Willie Wise, actually, and and, uh, and Silas wound up, uh, well, he and Webster wound up taking the Sonics to the finals that year, the next year, right, <laughs> of, right, of the, uh, of the uh, you know, against Washington, they lost, and then Webster to, to the Knicks. He and I were pretty friendly till he became a Nick. Then I was killing him. And then, and then Silas ended up, you know, helping them win a championship the following year. And, and I always told, you know, Sam Schulman, the owner of the Sonics, that uh, you owe me a championship ring, boy. You know? Say, <laughs> <laughs> without my column, you would not have had those guys. And Silas, you know, and now, you know, look, look what he did. I mean, what a career he had. Oh, yeah. So we know how important he was to that whole thing. So anyway, you know, I don't even know what your question was, but it's all true. Okay, well, the answer was good. Whatever I asked you, that was a good answer. You know, the the kind of access that that you had, I mean, you you traveled with with the Celtics, with the Sonics, with... I mean, I could go through the Suns, the yeah. Blazers, uh, the, yeah. more teams yeah. than that, um, and even got you to must, run and practice. Reading, you must be reading something that was written, because <laughs> you, you have all those teams correct. Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm putting in my time here. And, and, you, and more, and, and more. And yeah. more I travel with most of the teams. And most of the teams, I ended up traveling with them for some for some time, you know, a week. Uh, the Sonics, I mean, we just zero in on the Sonics, so it's... So in 77, 78, and I, you know, I, I have trouble remembering years, which years were you, but though, that, those in the beginning of my column were so important to me that uh, I, I, the Knicks got knocked out early that year in the playoffs first round, and my editors, you know, I had picked the Sonics to win the championship. My editor said, you know, again, total freedom. He said, why don't you go to C- Seattle and cover the Sonics? You know, that's what we did in those days. And so... I went to Seattle and wound up staying for the entire playoffs, traveling with them. Wow. And, I mean, you talk about access. You know, it was crazy. I mean, it was, it was so unbelievable back then. Like, you know, during, during practices, I would play Lenny Wilkins one-on-one. Um, you know, I, 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 would, I, I can't tell you the stuff I would do with the players. Um, I'll have to save that for the book. But, but uh <laughs> You know, just just total access, and then um, and then the following year, I did it again. I went back and covered the whole playoffs with the Sonics. And, and you know, one thing that stands out to me because I arrived that first that first playoffs, I arrived in God, I'm going to say it was Portland, but it, but it could have been Seattle, and because they were playing each other, and I arrived to see Sigma outplay Maurice Lucas. And nobody, I think Sigma was a rookie that year. You know, again, I got specifics a little foggy sometimes. But I think he was a rookie. Nobody really knew him. And I was seeing him outplay Lucas, who I was like, you know, ABA guy. I said, whoa, you know, the enforcer. How is this possible? And uh, they beat them. You know, Walton, Walton was hurt, I believe. Yeah, he got hurt in the middle of the year. They were, Portland was 50 and 10 that year when he got hurt. But they were still pretty good. But they, but again, Sigma outplaying Lucas was big to me, and you know I've been a Sigma fan my whole life. All for that, I was always a, a Lucas fan, and uh, so that that really stands out. And you know, playing Lenny one on one and get my ass kicked, even though I knew he couldn't go to his right. You know, it's like <laughs> come on, 
All right, now. Tony, you're right. How are you going to be? You know? <laughs> Listen, I, I got, you know, I was reading an interview that you did somewhere, and you mentioned in passing that at one time or another, you either played one-on-one or, or had a shooting contest with, uh, with Bird, Dr. J, Isaiah, these various guys. I mean, I listen. I know you're working on a yeah. book, and let me tell you, I, like a lot of other people, that's that's a book that I can't <laughs> wait to read. So, but can well, you, I'm giving you everything here. You don't have to. Read it, <laughs> well, give me give me something about one of these. Uh, well, I've written. I've written. Yeah, I've written about most of, most of those things or talked about them. But you know, when I put them all together, it becomes a lot bigger. But but uh, I did play Bird one on one, and. Uh, you know, he was, he, 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 uh, you know, he saw me playing. I, Casey Jones let me work out with the Celtics. I mean, come on, right? Yeah, that's crazy. In 86, on the road with the Celtics, he let me work out with them. So when I wasn't watching Danny Ainge's kid, who was brought along on the trip, you know, now, now I think he's his assistant GM, um, I was allowed to play with the team. And Ainge, and Ainge busted my balls. But, um, so, so Bird says, you know, I hear you talking a lot of crap, you know, let's, you know, let's go. Let's go. You want to play? We'll play. And um, it's in front of the team. There's nobody else there. We're in Sacramento. And uh, I hand check him, and he slaps my hand as hard as he can. And uh, am I allowed to curse? <laughs> you you are. All right. So, so uh, I hand check him. He slaps it. You know, really hurt. And he says, do you want to play? You want to fuck around? <laughs> you know? I said, I think I'd rather play. <laughs> so I, uh, so I, I, he beat me eleven five or eleven six. I'm going to say in the book it was eleven six. <laughs> and um, you know, I was hitting jump shots on Larry Bird for crying out loud. I mean, the whole team is watching. It was, it was unbelievable. That's amazing. Now, 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 I know that you and you and uh, uh, Doc are, are are tight. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he was the best man at your wedding. Correct. Um, t- talk to me a little bit about Rucker Park because going back, backtracking just a little bit here to the early '70s, I know that you were very involved in the uh, the, the Rucker tournaments in Harlem, uh, coaching, organizing, playing. And I believe that that was initially your introduction to uh, to Julia Serving. Not really. Uh, I had I had uh, done a couple. I had I had done a story on him when he was a sophomore at the University of Massachusetts. Okay. I him on the phone and did a story on him, and then I went to see him play at the Garden. They had played. Um, I believe it was uh, Marquette, the Memages team in the uh, NIT. NIT was big back then. I mean, really big. And um, I think that was the year that uh, Al McGuire turned down the NCAA. He was mad at them because they put him in a region he didn't want to be in. He turned him down. He went to the NIT. You know, like <laughs> it was a different <laughs> world. We did in those days. It was like, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> no, and, and so they they uh, they beat Julius at the Garden. But I, I saw him then, and then then he began. And then he was a junior. He had a great junior year, and he graduated. And a friend of mine who knew him real well was actually his best man at his wedding, at his first wedding, a guy named Dave Brownville, he, uh, he had gone to Hofstra, so I knew him, and uh, played ball for Hofstra. And so he got, he got Julius to come down to the park when I was starting my team. And that's how it started. We showed up basically at the park for the first time, both of us, and uh, that was the first, you know, and that, that, that was the start of uh, 
of his, you know, mythical, mythical uh, participation in that record tournament. It was, he played four years for my team. Uh, we won two titles and then we both left and I came back in the early 80s with a whole different team. Uh, Louis Orr, Pat Cummings, um, they played me, Sam Worthen. And we won two more championships. And um, so the first, the first times, the first years, I did play also. And uh, so that was that was pretty amazing. And um, you know, I talk about being on a fast break with Julius and looking off somebody, giving him a giving him a pass, and he and he dunked it. And I and I came. You know, so, <laughs> I can't listen. I came just hearing you tell the story, so I can only oh, I can only imagine. I, I'm cutting things short. I'm cutting things short. But, but it was that that same day. That same day, I was guarding Romanical for half a game, and uh, they they wound up beating us by a few points. I think Julius seriously had like seventy points in the game. We were playing indoors because it was raining, and. Uh, a bunch of guys didn't show up because of the switch of venues, and so I played almost uh, almost half, maybe more than half a game, and guarding Manigault, uh, yeah, it was it was unbelievable. In some ways, writing a book was this easy. <laughs> Listen, I I feel like you're the you're the ultimate NBA insider, okay, or at least that's my version of the story. Now, th- this mm-hmm. is this is sort of the. I, it. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I'd stick to it. <laughs> All right, well, this is this is sort of my NBA urban legend segment here, okay? Uh, the right. Stories that circulate, that float around the NBA uh, without uh, oftentimes any, any kind of hard proof, but that a lot of people nonetheless believe, all right? Um, the Ewing draft lottery... Is there anything to people's suspicions that that draft lottery may have in some way or another been tilted in favor of the right. Knickerbockers? So, so, so let me let me ask you something. You think if I knew that to be true, <laughs> that breaking, breaking it on your podcast? Well, you know, you can't blame a guy for trying, right? I mean... Uh. No, no, no. I mean, you know, it's, again, it's, it's, like, it's like Jordan being kicked out for gambling. I mean, really... It's it's most of that stuff, all all of that kind of stuff is just put out there by uh, by people who have no clue. And you know, those are some of the some of the same people who think the games are fixed and everything's straight. I mean, so why are you paying attention to the league? Just go follow wrestling. You know, come on. I mean, exactly. I, I, people like that. People like that that ask me that. You know, who, not ask me who believe it um, on Twitter and stuff. I, I uh, immediately, you know, block them. <laughs> they're like the. I, I don't. I don't want to. Yeah. I deal with stupidity. They're like the birthers, you know, or, or, or truthers. Yeah. Um, do, what do you think about sort of the, in more broadly speaking, and you you alluded to it, uh, this perception that has sort of followed the NBA at various times that. Oh well, you know the NBA wants this series to go seven games. Oh well, yeah, blah yeah, blah. And, it's the same stuff. And no, it's the same stuff. And you know, Tim well, Donaghy want, certainly I, has driven a lot of that in recent years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's <laughs> as a criminal. I mean, he's a, he's a degenerate gambler. You know, a uh, God. How, how many bad things can I say about that guy? Um. 
you know, the things, the accusations he made are, are so unfounded, even by, you know, you can check facts, facts that he throws, and things that that there that you can actually check. But, but, but um, I worked for NBC for 12 years. I was on the inside of, uh, you know, an awful lot of stuff that was going on behind the scenes. And I, and I can tell you flat out, that the only one who, who, who wanted to fix the games was Dick Ebersole of NBC. I mean, you know, <laughs> well, let's play get go seven, you know, he's screaming in your ear, you know, we got, would, would you go on at halftime and tell them to give Shaq the ball down low, for Christ's sake, you know, we're, you know, that kind of stuff. So, uh, <laughs> none, none of that stuff ever went on, and uh, it's a joke, yeah. There's such a conspiracy, you know, these, these people who believe, such a conspiracy. So what do you think? Three people were in on the conspiracy to make it go seven? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think, come on. Right. No, I, I totally <laughs> o- hear only, you. Only the refs were involved. Well, somebody had to tell the refs, and then, the, <laughs> and then they had to come from somewhere. So all these years, Jesus, nothing's come out about yeah, No deathbed confessions yet, you know? So... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Save that for my book. I like that line. Yeah, so, you know, I, I don't even know if I'll get into that stuff in my book because it's, it's, I don't like the waste. It's like, it's like doing TV with Charles Barkley. I, I don't, I don't want to get on, I don't want to get on television and listen to his nonsense if I have content. And that, that stance cost me millions and millions of dollars. But, you know, I, I just couldn't go to the studio and, and waste my time listening to, you know, stuff off the top of his head. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I mean, because that's what they wanted, right? Let's put Vessie and Barkley together right. and let the sparks fly. They wanted they wanted that, but they, they didn't want it once I took it to extremes. I took it to the column because I just was so frustrated listening to him. I... Uh, I, you know, again, I, I, I would tell my boss, I, I did my homework to come into this, and this is before Barkley showed up. I would, you know, I'd, every show I'd have a lot of info, and I'd have my own little segments and all that stuff. And now I come in there, and I have to refute everything that comes out of his mouth. But they, they loved it, you know, and they still love it. They don't care. Nobody, nobody questions him now, you know, those other morons on that show. I mean, they have... They have no no idea what's really going on, so then I got a question. I mean, they don't want to get fired anyway. So, I mean, not Ernie. I'm not talking about Ernie, but Ernie's got to put up with it. And, uh, it's a shtick, and uh, it's worked. So there it is. Now, for for me, going back to the the, uh, the NBA on NBC and the the work that you did there, there was always a feeling that when you were speaking on on that show that you could something important could come out of your mouth at any given time you were bringing that kind of information uh to the air how do you feel about the coverage that you see today of the nba do you feel like on an overall basis it's it's decent or do you feel like the coverage has declined from uh the years that you were so prominently involved in nbc's production well look i don't i, I gotta say you know I hate when people say this. You know, I got to tell you the truth. But I, I do not watch TNT anymore. I just there's no way they they give me nothing. 
Now, I'll try to watch the games, you know, but but then they've got Chris Weber on there, too. And, I mean, it's just, and Reggie Miller, and it's just, it's impossible. They're so full of shit. They're so, so insincere. And, you know, I can't listen to these phonies talking their cliches and, you know, kissing ass, talking about kissing ass, whatever. He kisses so many asses in one sentence. It's, it's, uh, it boggles my mind. But, but, um, you know, I try to watch ESPN and, uh, they're much better this year with Phillips. And, uh, he makes Rose much better and, and vice versa. They, you know, they work well together. But to answer your question, they don't, they're not looking to break stories anymore. They don't do any of that. They'll have a sideline reporter, you know, go to go to a sideline reporter who used to, you know, when I was back in the day, I I never did that. I I didn't like sideline reporting, but I would be at games and look at the break stories. I would be at live games. Uh, for instance, I remember breaking the uh, Tracy McGrady story. And when he was in Toronto, um, right after the game, he gave me the story that he was not coming back the following year. We broke that on the year. But they don't do any of it. They're not looking to do it. The sideline reporter tells you, <laughs> most, most, usually it's a she, and she will go on and on and on with crap. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my God. And the coaches so don't, I the coaches don't want to do those, you know, between quarters. They no, matter. that's, you know, that's, I don't know what that's for. You know, somebody came up with that idea, and now they don't know how to get rid of it. All right, Peter, and tell yeah, me. They don't say anything. Tell me, how, how much, I know that it's one of your regrets that you never got to uh, have one of those little between-quarter segments with Pop. Come on. You, 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 oh, we, <laughs> we would have, we definitely would have gone at it. Yeah, but then I would have been fired right afterwards <laughs> because I wouldn't have taken it. You know, I, I, I tell a story that uh, after I was out of TV and I was traveling around, again, total freedom from the post, and I went to a, a playoff series between the Mavericks and the Spurs, and after after the game in San Antonio, uh, it was on TV, it was NBA TV, I guess, and, and I asked the question, and he gave me, you know, a snotty answer, the usual snotty answer, and asked me, like, what what do I know about anything? You know, uh, all I did was win a couple of Rucker championships or something. And I and I said to him, you know, and this is on the air, and I said, yeah, I said, I'll tell you the truth, Pop, you know, if, uh, if I had told Tim Duncan, you know, I'd win as many championships as you. And so, whoa, you know, it's like, whoa. This is, and, and so we went to the locker room afterward, and he says to me, uh, man, wasn't that fun? And I said, no. No, that wasn't fun. That was just that was ridiculous. You know why do you have to always embarrass people? And so, so with him, he's he's like looking to start trouble. And I don't think we ever talked after that. But um, you know, maybe I should have said, "Yeah, that was fun, Pop. Yeah, you're the greatest. You know, hope Pop." Let, let me ask you, know? you talking about coaching because. As you said, well, if I had Duncan, uh, I might be wearing some rings now, too. In the NBA... Well, I had Julius, and I won two championships. <laughs> Kevin Lockery had Julius, and he won two championships. So what does that tell you? Well, hey, now... All right, well, now you're getting me into another question. Let, let me ask you this one first. Uh, of the coaches that you covered in your, in your career... Um, who are the two or three guys that, for you, were the, were the cream of the crop? Um, you know, it's, it's it's pretty. I mean, there were a lot of them. There there were a lot. Well, I mean, let's 
look at their records and go from there, you know. I mean, Riley and Jackson and Arbeck, and I caught Arbeck right at the end. I, I maybe did not cover. He left the so no, I didn't, I didn't cover Arbeck. But, um, you know, a great one was Alex Hannum, who nobody's ever heard of. Um, but, but one of, one of two people, one of two coaches to win ABA and NBA championships. He won. Bill Sharman being the other, right? Bill, oh, man, you're good. And, and, but, but Hannum, you know, people know Sharman really well, but Hannum was, you know, a guy that interrupted the, the Celtics, you know, they won 11 championships in 13 years, and Hannum won the other two. One with Philly, with Wilt, and one with St. Louis, with Bob Pettit. And, uh, and then he won with the Oakland Oaks in, uh, in the ABA, but nobody, you know, Alex who? You know? Right. The greatest sure. thing about Alex Hannum was, uh, you know, he, he coached, uh, uh, San Diego Rockets. He took over for Jack McMahon. Um, he, uh, like the first or second practice, he, he had trouble with Elvin Hayes as Jack McMahon did. And told everybody to go go to the locker room, and uh, you know that he and he and Alex, he and uh, Elvin were going to settle us as men. Wow! <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Alex and and Alex would have fought in a second. I mean, he almost fought Wilt in Philly. You know, six nine, six eight, six nine, just a tough guy. And then Elvin Hayes came in the locker room afterward. I know this from Stu Lance because they were they were roommates. And he said, that guy's crazy. He wanted to fight me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, he, but he practiced well from then on, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, don't so question anyway, the methodology. You know, Hannah, it works. Hannah and Sharman certainly in that in that category. And, you know, I thought Todd Fitzsimmons was, was great. And you know, Bill Harris was great. I, um, you know, there, there, there are a bunch. Tommy Einstein, I thought Tommy was great. Obviously, the player makes the coach to a to a great extent. How, how how much does the player make the coach? I mean, you look at a guy like Phil, who uh, I believe has eleven titles, which is a uh, um, you know an incredible number of titles. But he won six with Jordan, and he won uh, three with Shaq and Kobe, and he won two with Kobe and Gasol. Uh, could and he, and he won a couple in the uh, CBA, so this guy could coach. Yeah, I mean, no, no doubt, no doubt about it. But if you give if you give Peter Vesey, uh, or, or or if you give Dell Harris, or if you give Stan Allback, or you know, let's name let's name some competent coaches yeah. that kind of talent. Are they are they Phil Jackson? And with uh, you know, with lesser talent, is Phil Jackson just a guy who had a nice coaching career? Um, no, he's a great coach. Um, you know, I, I think. Everybody would agree that the year that Jordan retired, and uh, Phil Phil almost took them to the finals of the of the Eastern Conference. Their controversial calls in uh, in New York. They get by the Knicks that year. 90, that was ninety. What was it? Ninety four. Uh, right. Can't remember. Ninety four. Yeah, it was ninety four. And and, um, and and so you know, without Jordan, he's got Pippen and Kukoc and Carr, right? And uh, you know, I guess Harper. I can't remember, but. Great coaching, man, and uh, CBA. Great coaching, and 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 the way he can, you know, a lot of guys wouldn't be able to coach superstars; they would run all over them. But he was able to uh, to command respect, um, 
I've told the story many times of Phil when he was an assistant coach and I'm out in Chicago uh, doing a doing a feature for NBC. I'm in the, I'm in the uh, in the practice. Doug Collins is the coach. Phil's the assistant, and um, he comes over to to Jordan. You know, I don't remember you know what they were doing, but he said to Michael, "I, I no, I actually I take it back. I was I was there to interview for Michael, and um, so he came over to Michael, and we're we're on we're on the floor." And um, he said, Michael, when you're finished, he said, I want to see you in my office. <laughs> the assistant coach. Mm-hmm. And Michael says, uh, I feel like I can. I got, I got someplace to go. You know, I got to do something with So he goes, Michael, I want to see you in my office. And that, that told me everything I had to know about Phil as, as a head coach. You know, he was going to be a head coach. I didn't know with that team at the time. And... Um, but I also remember that uh, in, during that interview, you know, Doug Collins and I have butted heads for, you know, decades. And during that interview, Doug Collins is making noise during the interview to disrupt my interview on purpose. You know, so, uh, uh, yeah, okay, Doug. But um, how about that? How yeah. About that? And, and I know, I looked, I, I checked later on, Michael went to Phil afterwards. <laughs> Leave. So yeah, that's. I, well, I, 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 you know, who who could who else could have done that to Michael Jordan? I I want to raise your hands. <laughs> yeah, silence, <laughs> silence. Uh, not likely. Not likely. No, that's a great point. And, and, and Michael, and Michael, for his part, I think it was Phil's second year, maybe his first, and and um, as head coach, and we're in Vancouver for an exhibition game. Again, I can say this every, almost every time. Peter Vesey is in Vancouver for an exhibition game. Are you kidding me? But I was in <laughs> USA Today. At the, and um, so they're playing the Sonics. And during the, early in the game, uh, Michael comes over to me at the table. And, you know, at the courtside in those days, that's where the media sat in those days. And he said to me, can you believe this shit, this triangle offense? Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like, some things just never leave your mind. I mean, uh, like, okay. And, but my point is, is that he played, you know, he didn't, he didn't just lay down on it. He didn't get the coach fired, did he? He won championships. Mentioning, mentioning Jordan there, I'm going to sag here real quickly. Air Jordan, uh, you dubbed him Air Jordan. Now, shouldn't you get some sort of residual on all those sneaker sales? <laughs> I, I feel like well, you. First just... of all, okay, let me let me stop you. So, all right, he was wearing Air Jordans when I named them. Air okay, Jordan. okay, all right. So I really, I really don't deserve. Okay, too much credit. All right, I, I feel did my first. <laughs> it was an exhibition exhibition game at the Garden. His first year. And uh, I went nuts over what I saw, and I and I named and I nicknamed him Air Jordan. All right. He was wearing. Air okay, Jordan. all right. So we don't we don't but, have any type of civil uh, suit no, that we can file uh, here. No, we can file one. <laughs> I named I named I named Bird Larry Legend, and look what that got me. Hey, um, so 
why didn't I, uh, you know? The nicknames that that, that that I'm I'm just going to give you a short list here. Circumference for Charles Barkley. Uh, my personal favorite. I think this is the greatest one of all time. Joe Barry Carroll, of course. Joe Barely cares. Uh, the paper or or, or Joe Barry apathy <laughs> or or that or that one. Uh, the paper clips for the uh, lowly Clippers. The Cleveland Cadavers. Uh, which is one of the all-time uh, classics as well. Hot Plate Williams, uh, and yeah. it, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, with Jailblaz- Jailblazers. the Jailblazers, is uh, <laughs> is yet another one. What was the uh, what was Pat Cummings' nickname? Shortcomings. Pat <laughs> Shortcomings. Um, uh, and Pat Cummings. Now, let me stop you, Rick. Let me let yeah. me stop you. So every, almost every one of those negative nicknames got me in huge. You know, compensation at some point. You know, with you know, it's just amazing. You know, I played Williams. I played Williams. I mean, I did that at USA Today. I mean, I can remember exactly where I was. I was struggling on deadline. I named this guy Hotly. You know, playing off Hot Rod Williams. Yes, playing off Hot Rod. And and uh, so I don't know. A year or two later, I'm in LA, standing watching the my paper clips play. And some guy, some big guy, comes over to me and he says to me, you know, because of you naming him Hot Plate, you know, he, he almost killed himself, you know, this and that. He's blaming me for every problem that Williams ever had in his life, you know. And I'm like, this, this is going to be a problem here. You know, this guy's coming from my my rear. I don't know, you know, nobody's going to see what he's going to, he's going to nail me. And, uh, you know, nothing happened, but that's that's the kind of stuff that would happen. You know, who would think, you know, Hot Rod, was, Hot Plate was going around saying Bessie's responsible for me almost committing suicide. Wow. Jeez. Yeah, that's seems a bit a bit much. I mean, it's it's a quip. Yeah, but you, you never know. know. You know, these yeah. guys, you know, like, I felt bad. I mean, uh, you know, a quick... Uh, Quentin, Quentin Daly, you know, San Quentin Daly, I named him. And, uh, you know, after meeting him years later, I felt bad. You know, I did. I said, you know, I don't, I don't know what he did, what he didn't do, but that was a nice guy. And, you know, he died a few years ago. And I, was, I was upset. You know, some of these nicknames, they don't go away. Um, I named Bill Musselman Musclehead. And, um, and uh, Stepien Septank, he was the owner of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And uh, they cornered me at an all-star game in New Jersey. And um, they asked, can we speak to you? Musselman, Musselman I know, would fight in a second. He's a tough guy. Yeah, yeah. No. And so I said, yeah, okay. So, you know, we go to the bowels of, uh, of the arena, and they said, look, you know, like this is... They're killing us every day, you know, these nicknames. Would you do us a favor and please stop? And I thought that was a great way of doing it. You know, there was no, I'll kill you if you don't stop. Um, it was a nice request, and I didn't do it again. Really? Until the book. <laughs> <laughs> is it true? You know, is... you know, I'll tell the story during the book, uh, in the book. But no, I thought that was, well, you know, that was professional, and... Is the, Why not? Is the story true that 
uh, uh, Joe Barry Carroll was introduced by you to your brother one time and said, you mean there's two of you motherfuckers? No, 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 no. It was, yeah, so that's a, that's a great story. Um, I wanted to believe that story was true, Peter. It's, it's true, but not true. It's, um, Julius Irving wanted to get us two together. And he, he's good friends with Joe and he's good friends with me. So I'm in Philly for a Warriors game. And I think he was with the Warriors then. It doesn't matter. And Julius, well, the three of us go out to eat. And um, during the meal, uh, Joe Barry mentions, uh, you know, I, I really liked your book, you know, Call Mine His Daughter. And I said, nah, that, that was my brother who wrote Coal Miner's Daughter. And that's when he said, you mean there are two of you motherfuckers? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. Yeah, that's still good enough. Okay, all right. That's better. So, no, that's better. Yeah, that's better, actually. you got to get the details right. That's an even better story. He was incredulous. He couldn't believe it. <laughs> he was just praying that he never that crossed story. paths with your brother at that point, probably. Right. Well, I, I couldn't wait to tell my brother that. But, um... I, I, you know, it's amazing that the backstory is is that uh, he wrote a book, and um, he, he uh, I've seen the book, I haven't bought it because it costs like fifty five dollars or something like that. But he actually had somebody who used to work for the Pacers send me what he wrote about me. Really? <laughs> yeah, and it was all positive. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, it, was, it was like crazy. How about that? Go <laughs> figure. That's where you started. You said that at the beginning, though, about you know people. People really wound up respecting the fact that I would take them on in certain ways, and you know, not at the time, but over time. That's interesting to me. The way that, as you said, over time. I mean, your career played out over decades. And, of course, as time goes on, people's feelings change. The immediacy goes away, and you start to look at it differently. As I was saying uh, with Riley, it seems like your relationship with Riley yeah. through the years was uh, was definitely difficult in places, but that kind of... Uh, at at the end, I mean, I guess you could piss him off tomorrow, but uh, but where we stand well, I'm not, now, there's I'm not writing, right? I'm not writing, so it's pretty difficult. But we we started out great, you know. We worked together at NBC the first year, um, you know. Then he then he's in my territory. The Knicks very tough to cover somebody and be friends with them, and um, you know. Then it got worse, and then when he left, and now. And then, it, and then it got better, and uh, yeah, we've become actually pretty damn friendly, and uh, I respect the hell out of him, and I hope he respects me. It seems like he does, and um, yeah, so that's a perfect example. Um, there are others. There are many, many others like that. It's, it's crazy. What do you think of the tenure of Adam Silver so far? Well, I'm a big proponent of Adam Silver. Um, Met him, met him the summer he was hired, and we remained very, very good friends over the years. We still are. And I knew he'd be great because he's his own man, and he's so intelligent, and he's got a great sense of humor. And um, so he's done everything right. You know, um, he's nothing wrong. So not surprised at all, and it'll continue.
All right, this is my this is my pet question that I that I ask every uh, old school pro basketball guy. Why isn't George McGinnis in the Hall of Fame? Right. Well, he will be. He will be. Um, I, w- I was on the uh, the Hall of Fame's ABA committee until Gary Colangelo disbanded it last year. And um, uh, lying to me, saying he wouldn't do it, and uh, he did. And believe me, I made that phone call and said to him, mm-hmm. and he tried to tell me, no, the directors, the directors did it. Jerry, tell that to somebody who might believe it, but you're running this whole thing. And he was, George was on, the, he, he, was, he was on our list as the number one guy for this past year. Now, I'm not saying he would have gotten it. There were seven of us on the committee. I'm not saying he would have gotten it, but he was the guy. It was either going to be him or Zelmo or, or um, come on, Jesse. Uh, wow. Oh, I can't believe I can't remember his name. There's another guard. And um, so it was those three guys. And then, you know, Willie Wise and Bobby Jones, and then they were on our list, and Matt Calvin. Um, but George, George will be in, you know, people, people forget George was a guy. They don't, they, they remember he was a great player, Pacers for sure. And they, and they remember he was, you know, a great, great player initially in the, in the NBA for the Sixers. But George, George had a lot of problems and, um, you know, he, he didn't like to practice. He was, he was way before Iverson and not wanting to practice. And actually refused. Um, you know, the story is, and it's a true story, when he was traded for Bobby Jones from Philly to Denver, um, the first practice, uh, George, Larry, at the end of practice, Larry Brown was was having the guys run suicide drills, and George says, I don't, I don't do suicide drills. First practice. <laughs> I just don't, I just don't said, do that. I don't do them. No, I don't do them. And uh, Larry said, you got to do them. You know, everybody does. No, I'm not doing them. And Larry went into call Shear and demanded he be traded. So we just got the motherfucker. What are you, are you crazy? You know? <laughs> <laughs> we just gave up, we just gave up Bobby Jones for him. <laughs> Figure it out. <laughs> you know? So it's those kind of stories oh, wow. that, yeah, that are plaguing him to a to you know a large degree. You know, not not that I would say that the guys in that room have any clue to stuff like that, because a lot of those guys that are in that room, and I've been in that room too, where they nominate those guys um, and then make the final vote. But um, you know, they know something, and and there's more. You know, there's a lot more. So he'll he'll get in. He'll get in. Um, George is, you know, I've, I've seen George, and he's got real back problems. Uh, you know, he has trouble walking, standing, and all that stuff. So it's, it's pretty sad. But yeah, you always uh, he, you always want people to you know to be around to be able to enjoy the honor. Um, you know, we've I think Ken Stabler went into the you know into the Pro Football Hall of Fame recently. Uh, the you know the year after he passed and. It's all, yeah. yeah, it's always very sad when that happens. I think you know, well, very bittersweet. Part of our ABA committee uh, when we when we voted on Slick Leonard was exactly that. You know, like why 
why are we prolonging putting him in? The guy's won three championships for the Pacers. You know, you can't you can't say there was a better coach over a long long period of time in the ABA than him. So why we're going to put him in eventually? Why are we doing? He's alive. How about that? How's yeah. that concept? Exactly. And that that everyone bought it. Everyone bought it, and they, we put him in. And thank God, you know, I like absolutely Slick and I. I I had so many beefs with Slick and, and his <laughs> wife, who was the GM for a time with the Pacers when when they you know when I covered the ABA and stuff. But the guy is a legend and a half. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and Platty played, and he played, and he was a great player at Indiana, and then he was, you know, played in the Lakers, and he was on that that Laker plane that all that crashed in the oh, yeah. home field in right. Iowa. You know, right. He was on that plane. And, yeah. And he likes dogs. Huh. <laughs> all right now. In the Hall of Fame. All right now. I was gonna. I was gonna ask you now. I know that you're in. You're, you're involved with with uh, the, the rescue animals. I mean, uh, and that's really all I know about what you're doing now. You know, I wanted to mention the uh, the Ernie Johnson quote that 97 percent of the league reads Peter Vesey, and the other three percent are flat out liars. Um, you know, today today <laughs> today uh, you know I read you every day on, on Twitter uh, and, and follow you there. But beyond your presence. Uh, on Twitter, what what is? I mean, you you were a dynamo for so many years. I mean, what what is Peter Vesey up to now? Well, you know, other than other than you know the Twitter writing and trying to write my book every once in a while, um, it's just very frustrating. I have so much stuff. Like I've given you an awful lot of stories today, and uh, again, if I if I could write my book the way I talk. The book would have been finished, you know, three years ago. But sitting down and trying to figure out what should be in, you know, it's the old Bob Siegel line, what to leave in, what to leave out. And I'm totally confused by it. So I, I, I'm trying to do that. But we do, my wife and I rescue animals. We've been doing it since uh, since uh, the World Trade disaster. We, we rescued a dog whose who's, uh, master had been killed in the, in the towers. And um, a yellow lab named Charlie. And so his legacy turned into, wow, we had one time we had 19 cats and uh, 11 dogs and five horses and, uh, and all living on, on where I am. And that's now down to, uh, you know, because we rescued a lot of older animals who were abused or nobody wanted or, you know, whatever. So now it's down to six dogs, uh, three of them who are dying, and um, and uh, eight cats and one horse. We're not, we are not rescuing. It's, hard. it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Jeez. Every day is... Now I'm on a couch here with two of my dogs, you know, so that's the heartwarming part. But the other part is like, whoa crazy what we go through yeah i mean it's a great thing that you do for those animals though i mean it really is yeah and what they do for us too They've right had dogs my whole life i probably you know would have been a uh, a benign writer 
Well, I don't know. I think that I'm glad. I'm glad that you didn't because uh, you, you contributed too much uh, to, uh, to to the game and to to the the fans that have enjoyed your work for all these years. Um, Peter Vesey, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast, my friend. I, I appreciate your generosity with with these stories and with uh, uh, giving me some reflections on your career and the and the players you covered. Appreciate it, Ricky. You did your homework. As most people who have interviewed me have done their homework, it's amazing. Uh, but um, and also straighten out a few things. So it's good. It's good to straighten out the stories. The Joe Barry Carroll story now, I much better uh, the, with the, yes. the corrected yeah. version. <laughs> So I, I love that. Well, listen, I got to tell you now. Find some time in between uh, hanging out with uh, with those dogs of yours to get this book together because uh, I'm telling you right now, your your book is going to be one of those that uh, you know I might sit down and, uh, and knock it out in a single day. The name of it is uh, the book I'll never write. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm uh, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that that sees the light of day sometime. All right, thanks, Ricky. Uh, how much fun was that? And Peter was kind enough to text me and tell me that the name he was blanking on when we were discussing the ABA stars and Hall of Fame consideration was James Jones. Uh, James Jones, a six-time ABA All-Star with the New Orleans Buccaneers, the Memphis Pros, and the Utah Stars. And Peter says he's Hall of Fame worthy, and that's good enough for me. So, big thanks again to Peter Vesey for coming on. What a funny guy and and so many great stories. Uh, You know, next week we reach a milestone on this podcast. And maybe that's overstating it a bit, but it certainly feels like a milestone to the one-man production staff that is me. Uh, Very excited uh, to mark the occasion with a guy who's been a follower and a supporter of the Super 70 Sports Twitter account for a long time now. Uh, one of the most popular and successful drivers in the history of auto racing, two-time Daytona 500 champion Dale Earnhardt Jr. will join me next week. And we're going to be talking about his passion growing up in the 1980s as a hardcore fan of the National Football League and the Washington Redskins. And we'll talk about his outlook for the 2017 NASCAR season. I I know he's excited to get back in the car and get out there next year. And I'm going to ask him the key question for any kid that was a fan of pro football in the 1980s. What time did your parents make you go to bed during Monday Night Football. So don't miss it. Next week, the 20th edition of the Super 70 Sports Podcast with Dale Jr. Thank you so much for listening, as always. I'm Ricky Cobb, and remember, never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. Podcast.